The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel, verse 7, cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. The judge's downward cycle begins a fourth time. You remember, the book of Judges is a series of rulers that takes place over several centuries in the land of Israel. They are not all sequential. Some of them may overlap and some of them participate in different regions. But the whole thing is a downward cycle. Each judge is going to do the will of the Lord, but it's going to be a little more messy. We started out with Othniel. Nothing bad said about him or his wife. They're the exemplars of the Israelite man and woman, the godly man and woman. Then you had Ehud. Nothing bad said about him either, but it just, his methods were just a little more questionable than Othniel's were. Othniel raised an army. Ehud assassinated the king in the bathroom. <laughs> then we had Shamgar, who's one of the minor judges. We know that he uh, slew 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Then you got to Barak and Deborah. Barak was the hesitant judge, do you remember? He was the one who shamed himself by requiring the prophetess to go with him. And he won the battle, but he didn't receive any glory for it. But in fact, Deborah did. But even so, the Bible does not have a lot of negative things to say against Barak. He just was less than ideal. Well, now we get to Gideon. And it's going to be the same thing. A hero of the faith who yet has an awful lot of asterisks next to his name. And that's just going to continue until we get all the way down to Samson, who, you know, is, is like the Barry Bonds of the book of Judges. It's like he did great things, but there's an asterisk right next to his name, right? What happens here? Midian and Amalek, they are not doing what Moab had done. They're not setting up a constant rule over Israel. What they're doing is they're functioning like raiders. They were on camels, and actually, one of, this is one of history's, not just the Bible, history's earliest reference to camels being used in warfare in this part of the world. It was something the Israelites were not prepared for. They had taken possession of the valleys. Remember, they, they had been up in the mountains. Well, now they're down in the valleys. But here come the Midianites and the Amalekites raiding their harvest. It says they would sow the fields, and then the Midianites would come. The implication of this is they sow the fields to get everything ready. It just starts to grow. Then Midian comes in, drives everybody out, harvests their field, eats all their food, takes all their stuff, and then leaves. And they're left to try to get by through a lean, hard winter. And the people cry out to God, which is part of the cycle. But you see, as we often see in the book of Judges, they cried out not in repentance, but because they were tired of the attacks coming their way. And this is... Very interesting, 
Because God here raises up a prophet to explain. He's not named. Most of the prophets in the Bible are not named. It talks about the prophets, plural, men that rose up to speak for the Lord, men and women. We saw Deborah last time. And he reminded them what the Lord had said in, in lots of places, but I'll just give you Joshua 24, 20, when he says, if you worship the gods of those other nations, the Lord will drive you out like he drove those other nations out. And they said, no, Joshua, we will serve. We will serve. He goes, I don't think you will. They said, no, we really will. And so they, they made a covenant together and that generation served the Lord, but the next ones have not. So he reminds them, he says, this is not just something that is happening to you. You broke the covenant and God is keeping his covenant. Deuteronomy 28 has a long list of blessings if they keep the covenant and a long list of curses if they fail to keep the covenant and they're failing to keep it. God is doing exactly what they should have expected. He's not gotten all to the place where he's going to exile them. That won't be for a long time yet, but he's allowing them to be harassed and harried by their enemies. And he's going to lead to raising up another judge. But I want to pause before we actually get to Gideon here because the, I've been reading through the book of Isaiah. And anytime you read through one of the prophetic books of the Bible, it is very, very difficult not to see our own nation reflected in the words they said. It's not that Isaiah wrote to the U.S. He wrote to Israel and to Samaria and to Judah. We know that. However, when we are doing the same kinds of things that they were doing and experiencing the same kinds of calamities they were experiencing, then you can take it to the bank that the Lord feels the same way about it that he did about them. So people say, well, the Old Testament is, it's all for us. Well, kind of, but remember, there's, there's good Bible study there. And some people, none of it's for us. Well, hold on a minute, that's not true either. If you're doing the same things they did, you should expect the Lord feels the same way about it. We are living during a season likewise, a, a longish season we've been going through here of, of national calamity, I'll call it. You know, we're not, we're like Israel. We have not been, you know, destroyed by our enemies or anything like that. But these things are starting to, to crop up. And what is needed for our time is a prophetic word from the Lord to remind our people. Consider the things that we've experienced and are experiencing in recent years. The, the obvious one is, is confusion and distrust among the people. Isn't that perhaps the leading problem that we have right now? Is the confusion? Nobody knows what to believe. Nobody knows if they can trust each other. You don't know if this person feels the same way about something as you do. Something terrible happens in the news and you have to question, is this actually what's happening or is it not? People are questioning things that they never thought would be questioned. Ideas about, the obvious one is, is gender or things about our own identity as a nation. People are confused. They don't know what to think. The Bible says that's something that God sends upon a people. I'll send confusion. You won't know if you're coming or going, the Lord says. Number two, the Lord sends weak and corrupt leaders to a nation that he is putting his hand upon. And I don't think that's any surprise to anybody. I don't know if I need to spend any time persuading you that our leaders are weak and corrupt. Even the ones you like. Even the ones I like. You look at this and you say, wow, all right, I think I know how I feel between these two, but is this really all we've got? And then you find out, well, so-and-so is insider trading and so-and-so is taking all that donation money and buying this and that with it. And this person is in the pocket of this. It's, it's corrupt, but they're also weak leaders. It's not as though they're, you know, they're taking this corruption, but they also are leading us on into a bright and glorious tomorrow. It's like, what are they doing up there? Right? Every, no, there's nobody that thinks, I really think they're doing a great job. Now, you might think it's the blue team, not the red team, but it's, you, you get the idea. 
How about financial instability? Well, we've not collapsed, but it's, it's, it feels unstable, doesn't it? You know, you had the, the bonanza of the housing market a couple years ago, and then that just grinds to a halt. Then gas goes up and gas goes down, and we, we don't know what the money's going to do, and, you know, we're just going to keep on raising the debt ceiling or not raise the debt ceiling, or we're going to, you know, go crypto or not go crypto or whatever you feel about it. It's just, it's unstable. It feels like I don't quite know what's going to happen with our money right now. That's something that God sends. Plagues and pandemics, those are from the Lord. And we called it the pandemic. Let's call it with the biblical word, a plague. A plague. Not just on us, but on the whole world. And that whole mess that, that we went through. And you know, all these things I'm listing, I know you have strong opinions about. But the Bible tells us to look to the Lord when these things happen. How about rampant, unchecked immorality? Weird stuff. Stuff that makes you sit back and go, what, what are you doing? How are they approving something like this? And even those that are not Christians all of a sudden stand next to us and say, I'm with you. I don't know what they're doing. All of these things are tools that God uses to get a nation's attention. Read Amos chapter 4. I don't have time to go through it all tonight, but he lists from verses 6 through 12 all the things that he did to try to get their attention. And he said, and you still wouldn't listen and you still wouldn't repent. Now, here's where we make a mistake. Confusion, weak leadership, financial instability, plagues, unchecked immorality. It is a mistake to think that those things are the problem. That's the error that we can fall into. You know, I, let's, let's take the transgender issue for a minute now. Now, we can point at that and say, that's a problem. It is a problem, but it is not the problem because that's never been anywhere. That's just strange and weird and ungodly and wicked. And we look at that and say, how is this so popular? How is this everywhere? How do people know about it? Do you not realize that that is something that God does to a nation? He allows the worst excesses of a person or a family or a nation to be unleashed and doesn't hold them back anymore? That's what Romans 1 tells us. Because they refused to acknowledge me as God, I gave them over to a debased mind to do what not, not, not to be done. Such things I've described, immorality, weak leadership, confusion, these are symptoms only. They're symptoms of the problem. They're things that God allows to pop up to get our attention. Make us sit up and say, what's going on? The problem was not the Midianites. It was not the Amalekites. The problem was that Israel had gone after foreign gods. And the Lord allowed calamity to come upon them. We, in our culture, have fallen prey to the cult of secularism. What does that mean? It means that we live and we worship and we vote as if the Bible was not true and God was not real. Now, we, in the church, we believe those things. But we believe the way I conduct myself outside of the church ought to be such as it would be if none of this was true. We're going to live our lives as if there is no such thing as God. The Bible's not true. And we're just going to try to get along by ourselves as best we can. Inside and outside the church. How many denominations that began with a mighty work of God are shriveling up on the vine because they said, we're going to, we're going to stop acknowledging the Bible as the word of God. It might contain pieces of the word of God, but it's not the whole word of God. Or they'd say, we don't believe that God has the authority to tell us what is right and wrong any longer. So we're going to, we're going to go after these things. And these mighty groups 
that were bastions of the gospel and, and of faith in Christ that shaped the religion of a godly Christian nation are just dying. Was that, what's the problem? Is it because they're, they're hiring gay priests? or they're ordained? No, that, the problem was a long time ago when you stopped honoring God as the ruler and the leader of your church. And much of the noise that the church is making today about such things is very much like what we read here in verse 6. They cried out for help to the Lord because they were brought very, very low. But what is the one thing they failed to do? They didn't cry out in repentance. They cried out for help. Now, God heard that, but he didn't immediately send help. He sent a prophet like John the Baptist to prepare the way for the help, to rebuke them. Much of the noise the church is making today is outrage, not repentance. How dare you do something in my backyard like that? How dare you bring something like that into my community? How dare you allow such people to gain prominence? How dare you put that on television instead of repentance? Well, I'm not the one that did it. Have you read your Bible? Did Nehemiah use they language when he prayed in Nehemiah chapter 1? He used we language. What have we done? When Daniel prayed to be restored to land, did he use they language? Daniel was righteous. But he said, we have done this. Isaiah even says, Lord, we perish like a leaf and our iniquities blow us away like the wind. Isaiah was godly. The coal had touched his lips, but he used that we language. Rather than calling the nation to repentance and to righteousness, we're trying to call them back to stop doing that. It's been cultural reaction, not Christian reaction. Largely. When we get more excited, I'm going to say something that's maybe a little intense, but it just needs to be said. When we get more excited about our Christian heritage or our national heritage than our Christian heritage, there's a problem. When the names of Washington and Jefferson and Franklin mean more to you than those of Peter and Paul and Matthew and James and John, there's a problem. He hates America. No. That's the problem. If that was your reaction, that, that's proof that you're stuck in this. You can't hear the, the truth because you're stuck. You're locked in. And we think, here's what we got to do. We got to get good laws and we got to get good politicians. We got, okay, yeah, I'm for all of that. But guess what? We've tried it before. You know what the church did in the late 1800s? We banned alcohol. We amended the Constitution and outlawed it. How'd it work? Not great. Do you know why? Because the law changed and the hearts of the people did not change. But you know what happened in the, in the city of Ephesus in the book of Acts? Idol sales shriveled up. Nobody was buying idols anymore. Do you know why? Because the law had not changed, but the hearts of the people had. And that's where the Lord has sent us. What we need, our hope is not better laws, better times. Those things are going to come. That's just, things rotate. That's what happens. But our only hope, true hope, is revival. Revival. A widespread restoration of worship, prayer, and holiness in God's church. Out there? Nope. In here. Revival. A widespread, that's a definition, a widespread restoration of worship, prayer, and holiness in the church. The classic verse comes from 2 Chronicles 7.14. You know it, I'm sure. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves. Humble is related to the word for humiliate. And pray 
and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Friends, revival is not part of the plan. It is the plan. And right now, that may seem as far off to you as it did to Israel as they were sitting there living in caves like animals while the sons of Esau, the Amalekites, and the other sons of Abraham, the Midianites, ravaged their promised land. We can take a lesson from this story. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came, prophet first, angel of the Lord second, came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon, was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord. It's hard to translate the sarcasm that the Hebrew has there. Well, excuse me, Lord. Sir, it could be translated. If Jehovah the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up, up, up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord. How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. So he's a descendant of Joseph. And I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. God visits the house of Gideon, really the house of Joash. I don't know how old Gideon was at this point, but he's living in his father's house still. And he's threshing wheat in the wine press. The way wheat was threshed back then is you would take, harvest the stalks, you would lay them down, you would take a flail or you'd get an animal to walk on it and it would grind up the, the husk so that the seeds would come out. You'd remove the straw and you would take a pitchfork or you'd take a shovel and you would toss it up into the air and the chaff, the husk that you couldn't eat, was light and it would blow away in the wind, but the heavier seed would fall to the ground. You'd gather that and you would make bread. You'd make uh, all sorts of things with that. Now, you usually did this on top of a, a hill somewhere. You did this where the wind could get to you so that the wind could blow. But he's here doing it in the wine press. Here's how they made wine presses back then. They would carve them like terraces into the rock or into the ground. You'd have an upper level with a, a little depression in it where you'd put all your grapes, and there would be a channel that you would cut. They would either build it with a pipe or they'd carve it through the rock. That would go down to the second depression in the ground. So as you're up here pressing the grapes, or if you used a tool to do it, the juice would run down through the pipe and it would gather in the bowl at the bottom. You'd gather that up into the wineskins. You'd put it into the house to ferment for a while until it was wine. Now, this was usually done, not in a windy place, but usually in a, in a cool, dry place because you're trying to make sure that it doesn't get corrupted. You want the wine to, to be pure and all the rest of it. But he's threshing wheat in the wine press. Sometimes it was done even in cellars, I've read places. He is hiding. You don't thresh wheat in the wine press. He's trying to keep their wheat hidden from the Midianites. Because if the Midianites are looking over the, the hill and they see the wheat going up in the air and they see the chaff blowing, they say, ah, harvest time. It's time to saddle up the, camel, the camels and go to war here. Well, the Lord shows up, the angel of the Lord, and he sees him and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And to put it in modern day English, Gideon goes, Pah. 
mighty man of valor. The Lord is with us. You're telling me he's sitting there trying to thresh wheat because the wind's not going to blow. So he's got to like hands sorted out. You're telling me that the Lord is with us. I'm a mighty. Where is the Lord? Where I'm sitting here doing this. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. God promised. I've heard all the great stories how God would drive out the Egyptians. God's abandoned us. God's not with us. He's got a little fire, doesn't he? A lot of internal fire. But God commissions him. God says, hey, you're upset about Midian? Why don't you go strike Midian? Why don't you lead the men to war? He goes, how am I supposed to do that? Weakest clan in Manasseh. I'm the weakest one in my father's house. That's why they got me over here doing this embarrassing job. He says, but I'll be with you. And you, strike the, you can strike the Midianites if you were the only one fighting. If I'm with you. Weak man in a weak clan. You know, God's heroes very often protest their call when God first calls them. Exodus 3, verse 11 says, Moses, I'm going to send you to my people to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says, who am I to stand before Pharaoh? And we, we went through the message when we went through it, but there's the five excuses he gives. The last one being, I love the way ESV translates it. Oh, Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> Plain and simple. Oh, Lord, please send someone else. How about Jeremiah? Jeremiah 1, before you were born, I knew you and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Lord, I cannot speak. I'm but a youth. I never quite had that attitude, but I've had plenty of people tell me, you can't speak, you're just a youth. Ain't you a little young to be a pastor, young man? The Lord said, don't say to me, I'm just a youth. I love the way the Lord phrases that. It's like, I, he's like, every time I try to get somebody to do something, it's either I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too married, I'm too single, I can't do anything. <laughs> but do you realize that weakness is exactly what God desires in his champions? The problem in Israel was a lack of faith in God. They thought that Baal and the Asherim would be better for their nation, so they abandoned the Lord. So if God raises up somebody that they will put their faith in instead of him, we've not solved the problem. God has to win this war in such a way that they will not be impressed with Gideon, they'll be impressed with God, because that's what he's trying to do. And that's why the Lord does this now, because the only way anybody can be saved is by grace through faith. Only Jesus can save you. So God uses people that are unimpressive to teach everybody that lesson. Well, it couldn't be you. Look at that guy. Look at that place. Look at that little church. Look at that. It's ridiculous. But look what God is doing. That's why God uses weak people. Revival is only ever wrought by ordinary men. You don't read about great men leading revivals. They become great men in our eyes because God uses them. How about Peter? Fisherman Peter. You ever known a professional fisherman? I've known a few. I went fishing in Ensenada before, down in Mexico, and these guys that kind of speak about a third English. So, you know, you kind of can get your point across. But these guys, they're rough guys, you know, pulling out like, cigarettes this big and still trying to get every last bit of smoke out of that as they can and you know just making you can tell they're making fun of you in Spanish and you don't speak it and they're laughing at you and there's big rough tough dudes and smell like fish all the time and Jesus goes you're going to be the one that I'm going to build my church on well Peter was the first pope I mean Peter was something he was somebody he was also married so figure that one out but <laughs> about Martin Luther Martin Luther was one of the greatest men of all. He was a monk. How many monks there were? Name one other monk from that time. You can't. 
He was one of those. He was one of those guys that shaved his hair all weird and wore those big like friar tuck habits and just walked around chanting in Latin all day long. And God said, I'm going to grab hold of this guy. I'm going to use that hard German head to break the oppression of the Catholic Church that's gone over the whole world right now. Ordinary man. How about John Wesley? Oh, John Wesley was a mighty preacher, a mighty evangelist. Yeah, do you know what happened the first time he tried to be a missionary? He goes to Georgia. You know, he goes to the worst place. Where's the worst people in the whole world? Georgia. <laughs> Not the country, the state. And he goes there, and I'll just summarize his story for you real quickly. He falls in love with this very wealthy woman, and he asks her to marry him, and she says no. And so the next sermon he gets up, and he preaches about the dangers of infidelity and women that are loose and tease people. And, and a rumor goes around that, that this woman has been trying to seduce the pastor. And so her very rich father puts out a warrant for his arrest because he's defaming my daughter. So John Wesley hops on a boat to go back to England. That's John Wesley. Before the Holy Spirit got hold of him. It actually was on that boat. He was first exposed to some Moravians that he has nothing he had ever seen before. These people actually love Jesus. And that started him on that path. But he's not, he's nobody. He's one of those you know, crazy online preachers you find places. Uh, Charles Finney. You know what Charles Finney used to do? He was a lawyer, and he used to take all of his legal expertise to make fun of Christians and to demonstrate to them that the Bible couldn't be true, and you're foolish, and you think that you're, you're following a, a true God, but science has long disproved that, until the Holy Spirit got hold of him too, and he was weeping under his desk in his office under conviction of sin, runs out into the woods and is hiding in a log and doesn't want to come out because he's under so much conviction of what a wicked man he'd been. And he led Thousands, maybe even millions of people to Jesus to make a profession of faith. How about Evan Roberts in the Welsh Revival? You say, who? Exactly. Worked in the coal mines. Loved going to church until one day the Lord raised him up and he began going places. People would say that when Evan Roberts got up there to preach, he would just be looking at his Bible and just thinking and praying and waiting to say something. And people would begin to run to the front and fall on their faces and repent and get saved. He didn't even say nothing. So it couldn't have been him. How about Chuck Smith, yeah. our own guy? He was nobody. Yeah, he was a preacher. He was doing good. And, you know, you saw the movie. His church wasn't about to die or anything like that. He's also about half his age as he was in the movie. But he was nobody special. The whole song, Little Country Church at the end of t uh, Edge of Town. That's what it was. But what did God do? He chose to use him. God uses ordinary people. 1 Corinthians 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no man might boast in the presence of God. Gideon had no strength. He's sitting there trying to pick apart grain by hand so that his enemies don't come and take it from him. Mighty man of valor. That's, that's called prophetic speaking. That's speaking a word over somebody because it sure wasn't true at the time. But what did he have? Had a little bit of fire in his belly. Little bit of fire. And God goes, I can work with that. But you know what he lacked? He lacked courage. And there's a lot of you in here maybe that have fire in your heart. You know what's right. You're desperate for God to do something. But whenever you think of God trying to use you to help, oh, God couldn't use me. You don't know my past. Now talk to Paul about your past, friend. Well, I don't know anything. Yeah, everybody in the New Testament, they didn't even have a New Testament. All those stories in the book of Acts, there were no epistles written. There was no book of Revelation. 
They just had the testimony, the story of Jesus and the power of the Holy Ghost. Well, I just, I, I'm busy. I don't have time. Yeah, that's the devil. If that's your excuse, that's the devil trying to keep you. A Christian's power comes through their faith. So you must tonight begin to believe that God can use you, use even you. And that indeed, that's exactly what he wants to do in your nation and your community and your home to stop waiting for when's the guy going to rise up? Lord goes, what's wrong with you? Mighty man of valor, powerful prayer warrior, woman of faith. Oh, that's not me. Lord goes, but I can make you that because I'll be with you. Yeah, we're dark times. Matthew 5 says we're the light of the world. Do you believe that God can use you to shine light in the darkness? Let's get to verse 17. That's what he's going to do with Gideon. And Gideon said to him, If now I've found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. He said, I'll stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. Pause. That's a lot of flour. It's a big thing he's making. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God. That word, alas, might be better translated, ah! It's a, it's a guttural Hebrew sound. Oh, oh, Lord God! For now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Shalom, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. For the first, but not the last time, Gideon asks God for a sign. And so he's like, you're the Lord speaking to me? Okay, well, we'll see about that. Well, you can prove it to me. Let me go get my, the word is present. The word is mincha in Hebrew. It means like tribute, like what Ehud brought. I'll bring you something. So there's two views on this. Either he was preparing a sacrifice to him, or he was just preparing a meal. And they, this was typical. You'd sacrifice part of the meal and then you would eat the rest. In any case, he says, put it up, put it over there on that rock. He touches it with his staff and whoom, fire erupts and consumes it. And the angel goes up in flames. And Gideon panics, but it says the Lord spoke to him. It seems that the Lord is beginning to speak to his heart now. And he promises to give him that shalom, that peace. The first step in revival is always a profound encounter with God. Gideon needed this moment. He's a little coward. He's a scaredy cat. He needs to remember his whole life. I saw the angel of the Lord go up in flames right in front of my face. You're not, you're not changing my mind. Of course, uh, you'll see later he still had a little trouble believing, even though he knew that God was with him. It's interesting. If you read the book of Judges, the more God participates in the story, the worse off the, the story usually goes. It's a very interesting thing. It's almost like you should have known better and God has to like hold him by the hand and make him do it. The first step in revival is always a profound encounter. We think of revival, we think mass evangelism, people streaming forward to be saved. We think of social transformation. The second great awakening brought about the abolition movement. Or you look at the, the reforms that happened in England under guys like William Wilberforce and so on. But 
That's not the first step. It doesn't begin with that. It starts with a renewed awareness of the presence of God. People often in stories of revival talk about a heaviness, which is actually the Hebrew word for glory is chavod. It means heavy or weight. That the Lord was just heavy. I don't know how else to describe it. God was there. And I went home and I couldn't shake him. They got in my bedroom and there was just, the Lord was there. I couldn't shake it. There's a renewed awe for the person of God. A respect for his name and his nature. There's a love for the Lord that's poured out. People just weeping at the name of Jesus. You look at the songs that are written during times of revival. And they're always so tender and so personal. Jesus loved me. I cannot get over that. You look at every revival in church history. Start with Pentecost. I mean, that's a pretty impressive encounter with God, wouldn't you say? Tongues of fire, mighty rushing wind, speaking in tongues all over the place. Thousands of people get saved. Yeah, God was there. You look at the Reformation. What did it, how did it begin with Martin Luther? God revealed the gospel to him. He understood the word for the first time. And all those decades of self-flagellation and terrible guilt lifted from him in an instant when he realized the just shall live by faith. He encountered God in his gospel first. That always happens. And every revival from Azusa Street all the way to the Jesus movement, God was there. Things were happening that could not be explained unless God was there. This is the attitude that a Christian ought always to have, friends. A delight in the presence of the Lord. And when the church begins to lose that, that's the first thing God has to restore. It's a delight for God and a thirst for His presence. Read with me Psalm 84. I'm going to read selected verses, but listen to how the psalmist writes. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Verse 10, for one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Let's put it in our terms. I would rather be the guy that welcomes people to the church full time than live in a big penthouse somewhere with all my needs paid for and a Bugatti and a boat. I'd rather be in the Lord's house. For the Lord God is a sun and shield and the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's the heart of somebody that knows God. A delight and a love for his presence and his church and his son and his Holy Spirit that cannot be shaken. America's first and greatest need is not to get rid of homosexuality. It's to catch a glimpse of God. There are plenty of countries that have outlawed homosexuality that don't know God. To learn to love Him again. To fall down and worship Him. Not just to find what I need from God. Not just to get my blessing for the day. Not just to keep a little religion. Not just to preserve the culture. But to be aware and in love with the person of God. I must know Him. I must know Him. But here's the thing. You know what revival means? Oh, revival. Send revival, Lord. We need revival. You know what that means? That means weekly, nightly, into the middle of the night, meetings of prayer and worship. Do we even have the stamina for something like that? Some of y'all are kind of hoping there's not a revival tonight because you'd rather get home. 
Oh, being here till one o'clock, two o'clock, I don't know if I could do that. And there's our problem. We don't have the stomach, we don't have the stamina to sit and wait for the Lord. The good news, though, is that you don't have to wait for the congregation. You don't have to wait for other people. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Your heart is the temple of the living God. God won't hide himself from you. God's got a giant book trying to get your attention. And then Satan comes in and says, God doesn't want to meet with you that way. Really? Why are we falling for that? Well, we've got to solve this problem first, and then, then we can seek the Lord. That's deception. That's the worst sort of deception. God will not hide himself from you. God revealed himself to Gideon. Okay, Lord, we'll see about that. Some of y'all come into church and that's the attitude you have. I know, I know people talk about the Lord and you know, I believe the Bible and all the rest, but I don't know if I'm into all this, this Holy Ghost stuff, so we'll see. You better watch how the Lord's going to set something on fire, catch your attention. All we can do is to hope and pray that God will visit us and that we'll be found waiting for Him. But here's what I'll say. If the Lord is stirring your heart to seek Him more, it's His will to show Himself to you. We don't think in supernatural terms anymore. We think that there are such things as whims and coincidences. We don't realize that God is in all things, that the enemy is at work, that there are angels surrounding us, that prayer affects things and changes things. And that when you sit there and I just have a, I really just have a desire to pray and to worship the Lord. Where do you think that came from? Where do you think that came from? Didn't come from the devil. And it certainly didn't come from your sinful flesh. I would rather be watching TV. Amen. That's the Lord speaking to you. Let's continue in this passage. Verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Yerubaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. God's first instructions for Gideon were, destroy your father's idols, break his temple into pieces, set up an altar to me, and sacrifice a bull to it. Your father's prized bull. It seemed that these might have had some sort of ritual significance to them. Not just his dad's other, you know, his other livestock. So what does he do? He gets these two bulls and ten servants. Gideon says he was the weakest man in his family. He may have been exaggerating a bit because he had enough servants to help him out and come do this. But at night, they go out, they get these two bulls, and they use these, they don't, you know, they 
engines at that time. So the bulls literally bulldoze this giant altar. They tear it down to pieces. He takes the Asherah pole, which would have been something like a totem pole, carved with pornographic images, chops it up into pieces, and uses that, the stones of Baal's altar, and the wood of Asherah's pole, to sacrifice his bull to the Lord. He is desecrating a holy place for the people of Israel. And he did it at night, and they find out in the morning, and they're so angry. He had desecrated their hope. Now Baal's going to be really mad at us. Now Asherah's going to be really mad. So if we thought we were, we, our only hope for fertility in the ground to, to help have a double harvest was for them to be with us. And you did that. And not only that, you defiled our culture. You know, you look at these pictures of places like Nepal or Japan or Greece where they've got these amazing, beautiful temples that have been built. And it, they're glorious to look at, but they're unworthy of the artistry that was put into them. Oh, look at that amazing, beautiful place. Yeah, but they're, they're sacrificing to pagan gods. They're worshiping demons in that place. Surprisingly, though, Gideon's father comes to his defense. A lot of people believe that Joash might have been the priest of Baal because it was in his house. But he says, if Baal can be that easily disregarded, he's no true God. He says, let Baal fight for himself. So they're not, they're not too far gone here. They're pretty far gone, but they're not too far. And he changes Gideon's name to Yerubal, which means let, let Baal fight him. It's kind of a cool name. It's a challenge to the god, the god Baal. He's the one that did it. You want to do something about it? There he is. Now, we have a hard time relating to this story because we are not idolaters ourselves. But the next step in revival is exactly this. It's renunciation and repentance. You have that mighty encounter with the Lord. And invariably, what comes next is a massive wave of repentance in the church. Every revival has mass repentance and weeping before the Lord, renouncing old sins, bringing out hidden ones, people coming in and realizing I've been a fraud and a phony and a hypocrite all this time. Weeping before the Lord. You can't skip that. A lot of folks want to have a revival service. What's going to happen is somebody's going to come and preach pretty strong and talk bad about all the things going on in the nation. And then we'll all get together and say, yes, Lord. Not realizing that revival begins with worship and it moves straight to repentance. Yeah. God breaks you down during times of revival. The whole church is broken down until there's nothing left. And then God builds them back up. But you can't skip this step. It's like saying, I really, really want to play in the NBA. All right, but you haven't done any of the work. You haven't exercised. You haven't been studying the game. You haven't been practicing. You don't know how to dribble. You don't know how to shoot. It's like, yeah, but I know that if I show up and I put the uniform on, and they all do that. It's like, yeah, but you're missing a few steps, don't you think? Don't you think? It's easy to call out the sins of other people, but do you know that that's not really what God requires of you? To call out other people? Some people think that's what religion is. Is finding other people and calling them out. What God wants you to do is like a Gideon. He says, I want you to get up and tear down the idols in your house. Your house. Look at your life, friends. Look at your house. Where is there compromise in your life? Well, I still serve the Lord. Okay, but where is there an altar to Baal built in your house? Where is there an Asherah pole hidden away on your computer? What are the strongholds that the devil has in your life? Where are the high places that you refuse to get rid of? God, I'll do anything, but don't ask me to do that. I don't want to break your heart. 
You know what the Lord said in the book of Joel when they had experienced a terrible calamity? He said in Joel 1, 13 and 14, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of Israel to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Is get the people together and repent as one. Say, we have done these things and we're not doing them anymore. It's part of the priest's job. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. It's calling us together at this solemn assembly to repentance. When does revival come? When fathers put a stop to complaining and cursing in their houses. Amen. Complaining is a minor thing. Oh, yeah? Go back and read the book of Numbers again and find out if you think complaining is a small thing complaining, cursing, filthy speech out of your mouth. Dad, step up and say, we don't talk like that here. How about when mothers will no longer permit filth and corruption to come through the television or through the internet or through social media? It's not happening in this house. We're not watching that anymore. Everybody watches that. I don't care. We're not like everybody else. We're different. They're going to think I'm weird. Well, good. They should think you're weird. We're not doing this. You know what? I'm not gonna, no, we're not doing Instagram anymore. Not doing this. Not doing TikTok anymore. Because I see what it does to you. And we're not doing this any longer. How about when the children in the house will insist on love and kindness? Mom and dad, I love you with all my heart, but the way you talk about them is not right. You can't talk about those people that way. You, you can't treat people at the bank like that or treat people at the DMV like that. You can't walk around with those sorts of things on your tongue or gossiping or being rude or, or in somebody's face and thinking that it makes you cool because you're, you're sassy and you're fun. That's, in, that's unkind. It's unloving. We don't do that, Mom. That's when revival comes. And I picked a bunch of examples that most people would think are pretty innocuous. Those are kind of, everyone kind of does that. Yeah, those are the things that make God sick. And then this will start to extend to the public square. Next week, we're going to have a battle against Midian. But for right now, we've got our own problems. God goes, before you do anything else, get that altar and smash it to pieces. Desecrate it so that they can never use it again. Plant your flag and say, we're serving Jesus from now on. 1 Peter 4.17 says, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. And judgment does not mean that the house of the Lord recognizes that you need judgment out there. It's not the same thing. They need to get it right. Yeah, they do. But what about you? What about that altar to Baal you have erected in your house? What about the way you speak to that man when you go to work and your husband doesn't know? What about the things you view online? Who knows? You do. And the Holy Spirit is pressing them on your heart right now. Does this apply? Does this qualify? It does. Everybody thinks you're so righteous and so wonderful, yet you're committing fornication and nobody knows about it. Where are the altars? Tear them down, Christian. Get up and tear them down. Make a change in your house, your neighborhood, our community, this church. I don't see everything that goes on here. People don't do things in front of me. The only thing I don't know what goes on, there's so many things that I find out through like a third party that just break my heart. You've got to be kidding me. You fix it. You tear it down. That's what revival is. Spend all this time, man, just waiting. Well, someday, come on, Lord, Holy Spirit, give me just a shot of power so that I'm just all of a sudden like I'm super sand. I'm ready to go and I'm going to punch everybody and I'm tear it all down. Don't wait. Just go. 
The devil will keep you waiting and waiting and waiting if you take this passive approach to the Christian life. Verse 33, Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, crossed the Jordan, and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. That could be translated enveloped Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. So this would be north-central Israel. And they went up to meet them. And here we go. You all know this part. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. He knows he's not doing the right thing here. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. We will dive more into this story a little bit next time, but the enemies come. The Holy Spirit clothed Gideon, and he rallies the tribes. But in the middle of this, you've got this really cringy story. And I've, I've heard this preached as, put out a fleece if you don't know. Uh, no, the whole point is that he shouldn't have put out a fleece. He had already seen the angel of the Lord catch fire and go up to heaven. He shouldn't have been asking for fleeces. Uh, okay, that one didn't count. Do it again. You're supposed to think that this is shameful, because it is. It's not a mark of Gideon's strength. It's a mark of his weakness and of God's incredible patience. It is better to take God at his word rather than to rely upon signs. A lot of times the reason we ask God for signs is we know what we're supposed to do and we don't want to do it. So we think that I'll flip a coin and it might be tails and I won't have to do it. That's why Jesus said a foolish and wicked generation asks for a sign. Actually, he's in an adulterous generation. Here we are in the same place as Gideon, full of the Holy Spirit and yet hesitant and fearful still. What need does a Christian have of signs from the Lord? You've got the word of God. You've got the Lord's word, not for this situation, but for every situation. To read it and to study it. It's amazing how many Christians will swear by that Bible and fight to the death and die on a cross to preserve it, and yet they never open it and actually read it. Or they'll read their favorite parts and then they'll just kind of skip over it and, and try to do the one Bible in a year thing. But listen, guys, if this is the only time Sunday, Wednesday, that you're opening your Bible, there's a problem. It's a problem. You only eat twice a week? How's that work for you? Meanwhile, how much time do you spend on your phone every day? Eight hours easy? No, only, only five hours. Five hours. What could you do with one hour in the Word a day? An hour in the Word. It's like, it's like coming to church. You sit through a three-hour movie. You sit down for an hour-long Bible study, maybe, and you can't sit still. You're itching to get up and move and go do something. The testimony of the Spirit, too, not just the Word of God, but the Spirit dwells in you. He speaks to you. He'll tell you what to do. It's clear. But what's the problem? The problem is not our lack of resources. It's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, 7. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. 
For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. There's no one who rouses, who gets up off the couch and grabs hold of God and said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And we wonder why revival doesn't come. Revival is, in one sense, a matter of God's sovereign dispensation. Of course, you can't make something like that happen. But we do know what revival entails. And if we were to start doing those things, worshiping the Lord, tearing down the high places in our own houses, repenting of our own sins, then you could experience at least limited revival in your life today. What's God going to say? No, no. It's good that you repented and it's good that you worship, but I'm not about to meet you there. Preposterous. America's calamities are symptoms, not the problem. And you can address that problem in your life now and be done with it. The churches have to return to the Lord. But those churches are composed of Christians, of individual Christians. And if judgment is going to begin, oh, God's going to judge this nation. Well, where does judgment begin? The house of the Lord. The house of the Lord. Do you not desire to see the Lord drive back his enemies and restore his glory to our great nation? Then you've got to start where you live. Tear down the idols in your house, Christian. Tear down the sins that are consuming you. Take the time and think through how does Satan come at you? Break it down like you're breaking down a defense and figure out a way to get through it. And I'll say this, every single one of you has had moments like this before where you say you, you realize you're lukewarm. And so you, you'd like to repent and go back and do the former things and buy from the Lord that, that wool without price and salve for your eyes so that you can see again. And you get right up to the moment. You're praying, you're worshiping, you're seeking, you're right up there and you can feel the Lord about to tip you over the edge and you pull back. You pull back at the last second. That's a little much for me. I got to get to work. There's something on TV I got to watch. Oh, something just happened in the yard. I got to get out there. What would happen if you didn't pull back this time? If you truly lived like this thing was true, what could happen? The devil loves to feed you outrage to make you think that those feelings are the same thing as spirituality. It's not. It's a cheap imitation of what Jesus will give you. It's not even a good imitation. Seek the Lord. Give up everything to follow him. I do not mind standing up and saying that a true Christian's top priority is the kingdom of God. Enough with this so-so important but not that important. I'll do my piece and then I'll go about the rest of my life. Nonsense. Abide in Christ. Stay with Christ. Commit yourself fully to Christ. And stop acting like God owes you something because you walked with him for a long time. You owe him everything. He bought you with his blood on the cross. The cross, Christians. Remember the cross. Do you remember the cross? He bled for you. He rose again to lead you on. It's time for us to turn to the Lord and say, God, you can have me. And that's where it begins.